It's going to be once every, one thing every week. We're going to forget one thing every week. That's what we're going to do. All right. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to take a moment just before we turn our study to God's word to thank you uh, collectively, the people of Grace Community Church, for your ongoing care and support, most especially for my family. Uh, you've, you've just blessed us in countless ways, from hands offering us uh, food, getting us settled, opening boxes, supplying us with what we need, helping out with our parents, and just, it's, it's been an immense blessing. Our transition here would have been much more difficult, except for your care and kindness, so thank you. Another note. It takes a while for new relationships to grow, but I do want you to know that while I do treat my teaching and my preaching that I present to you as like the, the supper meal of the family, it's, it's the essential thing, it's the gathering place, it's where most essentially my love for you is made known, I want to get to know you because I love you in Jesus Christ. I enjoy answering questions. I like getting together to talk about scripture or just hearing about what's going on in your life. So if you have questions about this passage or other passages or you just want to hang out, please reach out to me. I'd love to get to know you. And with that, let's look at the passage. So last week, we began our study through the book of John. We noted several things. We noted some particular challenges that are posed by this text as are posed by almost all of Scripture, how it speaks of wonderful and difficult things because John claims to tell us who we are and what we need. And we said the most basic idea of this prologue as it's called, is that Jesus came to create a new people through faith in his word. We made a few critical observations. We saw last week that the word is a person. We saw that the word is life itself, that the word who is Jesus Christ creates a new people through a new birth that is utterly unlike any kind of physical birth. It's a spiritual miracle, a work of faith by the Spirit of God. And so it's our relationship to that wonderful work of God's grace that becomes so central to the book or the gospel of John. Last week I gave a few different illustrations to sort of locate us, and I, I can't do that every single week, but this week, friend, if you're an unbeliever, or if you don't know Jesus, or if this is the first time you've walked into a church, or even just the first fifth time that you've walked into a church, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Jumping into the book of John can be a little scary. It's kind of like getting tossed as a baby into the deep end of a pool without floaties. So hang with us, is what I'm saying. Meaning, let's stick together for the following weeks. This week, there's one essential idea I want you to remember. If you're new to this whole thing, there's one essential idea I want you to remember, and it connects to the one that's on our handout. And that's that Jesus is the only way that we can truly know God. 
Jesus is the only way that we can truly know God. And we come to know Jesus by reading the Bible and trusting him to help us by his spirit. So if you get lost today, if you're a new believer, that's the point. The point is, you can only know God through Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, you have to look at his word. And if you want to understand his word, you have to trust God to help you. And that's another way of saying what we find in our main theme. Our main theme today, if you have a handout or it'll be up above here, is that Jesus is the final, the greatest, and clearest revelation of God. Jesus is the final, greatest, and clearest revelation of God. Another way of saying that would be that Jesus is the living supreme fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the living and supreme fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So let's summarize this. Really what we're doing this week, honestly, is that last week I could not handle some of the more difficult portions of this passage. In fact, we're going to find ourselves doing that a few times throughout our study of John. We're going to come back a second week, as it were, and look a little bit more closely at some of the expressions that we found last week but didn't talk about. And that's really what we're doing this week, is we're focusing in on verses 15 through 18. So if you have a Bible with you, I I hope that you will turn it on or flip to the appropriate page. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, especially verses 15 through 18. What happens here? Let's summarize it. In verse 15, we see, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's kind of a funny expression. We'll expand on this, but in short, in a culture that valued antiquity over novelty, meaning old stuff over new stuff, John insists that Jesus precedes and eclipses his ministry. Jesus, the person and his ministry, is both before John the Baptist and it's greater than John the Baptist. And then in verses 16 through 18, we see an expansion. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus' ministry eclipses, it supersedes, you might even go so far as to say it replaces Moses' ministry. The law, he says, came through Moses, but the critical distinction here, I don't know if you noticed it, is that It's not just that the law came through Moses and a new covenant came through Jesus. It's the law came through Moses. Jesus is grace and truth. So, our first big point today. Let's let's dive into this. Let's take a look. The first big point today, what you need to grasp is that Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. He fulfills all prophecy. Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. That's what John is saying here. When he says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, it introduces a little bit of an odd moment in the text. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, what? (laughs) What What are you saying? 
Now, this statement assumes a cultural perspective that we probably don't identify with as much in the United States. The idea that older is better. The idea that older is more authoritative. The further back you could trace your lineage, the greater that person is and the more authoritative they are. The grandfather in the house, the great-grandfather in the house, he is the most important figure in the house, that sort of a thing. The fact that Jesus came or was born after John the Baptist would ordinarily in the culture of the Jews mean that Jesus and his ministry were of less authority and of less value because John was older. Correct, got it. To paraphrase, I'm going to rephrase what John says here. He who comes after me temporally ranks ahead of me, he's preeminent, because in actual fact, he was ministering before me. So how's John, the author, going to answer this problem? He's going to answer it by saying, guys, Jesus is actually older than John. Like way older. <laughs> like, like his ministry has been going on since the creation, as we saw at the very beginning. His ministry and his authority is the most authoritative, preeminent, oldest authority, oldest ministry that could possibly exist. So he's addressing straight to their concern, like, Jesus is relatively new. No, he's not new. And we're still inclined to do this, though. We're still inclined to rank ministries on the basis of either their antiquity or their novelty. We'll do it with nations, too. Sometimes when nations form themselves, like when Pakistan formed itself, it said, a thousand years of Pakistan, even though the country had never existed up to that point. Um, you know, the cultures existed, sure, yes. But we've got these, this want to say, we are here and we've been here for a long time and that's what makes us authoritative, you know. Or we'll say... We're new. This is the new way of doing things, and it's better. And the Bible kind of cuts against both of these. You'll hear when you talk with someone who doesn't know Jesus, they'll say things like, but wasn't Buddhism older than Christianity? The implication being, it's more accurate. It's a more trustworthy way. Or in more recent times, this quote gets attributed to different people, so I don't know who actually said it, but it says, anyone who shaves with an electric razor cannot believe that men walk on water. <laughs> and the point is, is like, it, we've discovered the new and the better thing. We have electric razors. We don't need people to walk on water. Like, I have the internet. So... You have these two responses, like, newer is better. And if Jesus isn't the newest thing in town, he doesn't matter. And then the other side, which is like, no, older is better. And, well, if he's not the oldest thing I can find, then I can surely find something better. But the Bible challenges this ranking, and that's what I'm getting at here. First, the Bible teaches us to place value not on the age of an idea or the novelty of an idea. The Bible tells us it matters who the idea came from. In other words, the origin of the idea. That's what matters. We, we can't forget that we've had all these 17 verses go before this, and it's associating the origin of this new teaching with God. Now, since the Bible says, look, if it's new, great. If it's old, great. What matters, is it of God? 
you'll remember in Galatians, Paul warns about a new teacher showing up. He says, I don't even care if it's an angel from heaven and he shows up and he declares to you a gospel that is not the gospel that we declared to you. Let him be accursed. So I don't care how new it is. If it doesn't conform with the gospel that comes from God, it's not a gospel. And he tells the Jews, yeah, I know you've been doing this a long time. It doesn't matter. It's not from God. What matters is, is it from God? The second thing that we need to note there is that we should value God's word because it's eternal. It outranks and outlasts every kind of human idea, the old and the new. The Bible is insisting that the message you're about to read transcends every other message. So the Bible's not merely saying that Jesus is greater than John or John's ministry. Instead, it's emphasizing how John the Baptist was a type of all the prophets. If we look at some of the other Gospels in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now that's significant. That's significant because if John the Baptist, whom Jesus considered to be the greatest of all prophets, taught that Jesus' ministry eclipses his own, then Jesus' ministry is greater than all of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Nahum, all your favorite people, Jesus is greater. To mistake Jesus as only a prophet misunderstands the Gospels and Jesus himself. If you're not a Christian today, you've almost certainly heard someone tell you or you believe that Jesus was just a prophet and that that's all the Bible ever claimed him to be. A friend, an honest reading of the Gospel of John does not admit of that conclusion. The Bible thinks that Jesus is more than a prophet. It thinks that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. He's not just a prophet, so don't take that as gospel. <laughs> John the disciple wants us to be clear that the gospel is not that Jesus is a better prophet or a more novel prophet than even John the Baptist, but that Jesus is the author and the object of all prophecy. In other words, all prophecy comes from him and all prophecy points to him. He's not just another revelation of God. And that's what's critical, is, it, is that we see in John that the Gospel of John is insisting that this is not just another way of understanding God. This is the way of understanding God. Just like in Hebrews, the opening statement, the author says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. In a sense, John chapter 1, 1 through 18, is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So that's the first thing that we want to grasp. Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. He fulfills all prophecy. The next thing that we want to see is that Jesus is greater than Moses. He fulfills the law. Jesus is greater than Moses. He fulfills the law. In verses 16 through 18, we have a series of statements. The first is, from his 
fullness we have received. This is saying that Jesus' covenant is more final, more perfect, more complete than Moses. In other words, the new covenant, the thing that Jesus brings to us, is the expression of the fullness of God. For people say, well, that's only half the story. You haven't gotten the whole story. What they mean is you're missing some critical details that will inform how you understand the events that they just told you. Well, if you look at Scripture and you just read Moses, you're only reading half the story. You're missing some absolutely critical details. Now, it doesn't mean that what you read in Moses is not true. That's not the point. The point is you're missing some really critical details that show you what God wants you to see about him. I'm not always the greatest at coming up with illustrations, so I'm going to throw a few at you. We'll see what you think. The first illustration that I thought of was, this is, I'm clearly cheating from Hebrews here. It's like looking through a smoky glass rather than a clear lens. Or it's like when you get a new prescription. Now, I, I can see many of you do not, you are not blessed with the wonderful gift of glasses, but I am. And as a result of that, you get to go and visit a wonderful doctor periodically, and he'll put this fancy contraption on your face that looks like it's an animal about to eat you. And in it are all these different lenses, and he switches between them, and they always ask you this question, you know, one or two, three or four. And what they mean is which one is clearer than the other one? And sometimes it's really obvious. You look through one, and you're like, I can see. And then they flip to the next one, you're like, I cannot see. You know, so it's... In a sense, that's what the scriptures say the covenant of Moses is like. It's like looking through a lens that it gives you some approximation of what's going on around you, but you don't see it clearly. And then, and then in the new covenant, when Jesus comes, he flips to number two, and it's like, oh, now I can see. Now it makes sense. That one kind of works. Another one, though, which leads more into this passage and Hebrews would be like the difference between a Morse telegram and a cell phone. Anybody know what a Morse telegram is? Anybody have to learn, you know, you, you learn your Morse code? Originally, we found a way to send messages using electrical signals over long lengths of wire, and we came up with a code that would send those signals. When I was a kid, my father read to me Sherlock Holmes, and in Sherlock Holmes, he sometimes gets word of a case with a telegram. New news, stop. The burglar is at, stop. You know, and it's got a message, right? You could communicate using this form of communication. It was novel at the time. They thought, wow, this is amazing. I can send instantly a message from one place to another. Yeah, but then we invented the phone. <laughs> and the phone renders Telegrams obsolete. How many of you receive a telegram to go home, like from school, or receive a telegram that your new patient is that you don't? <laughs> They're going to call you. Because it so utterly transforms the communication. The difference between just words on a page and hearing the voice of the person, a limited communication versus complete and as much as you want communication, as it were, a very clear expression. Jesus is greater than Moses. He renders the old covenant obsolete. 
It's not that it was wrong. The Morse code message was a real message, and it got to you, but the telephone renders the other one obsolete. The law, then, is not wrong. This is a critical point in in Scripture. Nor is the law evil. In other words, what Moses did is he didn't subject us to something that was either inaccurate or which wasn't good for us. No. It rightly reflects the nature, the character, and the desire of God. Read Psalm 119 if you have questions. Right? It lifts up, it exalts the idea of the law that God gave to his people. It is beautiful, it is clear, it's what protects us, it is a good thing. The problem isn't the law, right? The problem is that when we, broken sinners, come into contact with the law, sin goes crazy. Romans 7, 7 through 8 says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Right there you can see the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to tell you, you need a savior. That's the point of the law. If you come away from the law with any other conclusion than that one, you're misreading the law. And we do it all the time. Sometimes we look at the law and we say, hey, I'm pretty sure I do this. I am pretty awesome. I don't think I need a savior. Right? Wrong conclusion. That's not the point of the law. And sometimes we look at it and we go, this is insane. Nobody can keep this. Not me, not nobody. So I'm not gonna. Also wrong. The point of the law is you need a savior. You're supposed to come into contact with it and realize, I can't do this, but I need to do this. I need someone to do this for me. Galatians 2, especially verse 16, says, Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Meaning no one is going to be able to stand right with God if they try and get there by obeying the law. Verse 21 in the same chapter says, If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Jesus himself necessarily supersedes the written word of God. We see that magnified as you studied in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you, raising himself as over and above the written law of Moses. Jesus is the living embodiment. He is the perfect image of God. He is the fullness of of the Godhead. And now we've got that word again, right? When we rely on Jesus and not the law for our righteousness, for our right standing with God, we are leaning on the fullness of God's grace and goodness. So from his fullness we have received. Moses, partial, obsolete, imperfect picture, imperfect reflection. When the law comes into contact with our sinful state, it just creates brokenness. But in Christ, we see the fullness of God clearly. We have a way into his presence. Then this other phrase, which mystifies me, I'm sure whatever translation you're looking at, it does not read grace instead of grace. Probably says grace upon grace. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And without getting too excited about the Greek, 
the most grammatically straightforward and consistent translation of this, at least amongst the commentators that I read and based on my own instruction, is not that. <laughs> Should be grace instead of grace. And you can even guess this, because the words are charis. Now I'm going to tell you that's grace. <clears throat> charis, anti, charis. Anti, you know that word, antichrist. Anti-disestablishmentarianism, you know it. It means against. It means in the place of. It means a substitute for, right? An antichrist is someone who is trying to substitute for Christ by going against Christ. John does not say charis epicharis, grace on top of grace. He says charis anticharis. Well, what does that mean? See, grace on top of grace would mean that the law was an expression of grace and that Jesus' ministry was kind of the same thing, just more of it. No, grace instead of grace acknowledges that God's gift of the law was grace, but that the grace that's in and through the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ excels and eclipses the law. It is a fundamentally fuller, more perfect grace. And it's not just here. If you look across the scriptures in Mark 2, 22, You'll see, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. Jesus is talking about how this new covenant cannot be put into the strictures of the old. It's got to be new. You've got to have a new birth if you're going to walk in the new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says, by speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. Morse code. And what is obsolete and aging soon will disappear. In 2 Corinthians 3, especially verses 7 through 11, it says, Now if the ministry of death, that being the law, carved in letters of stone, big tablets, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It's going to transcend the glory. Of Moses. Scripture teaches that though Jesus' ministry supersedes Moses, it doesn't contradict it. It renders it obsolete. Again, Morse code. It is a communication. It said real things, true things, honest things. It's not that it isn't communication. It is. There's just a greater, clearer, better, utterly transcendent form. The law was given, but grace and truth came. The next phrase is, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, or, depending on your translation, in Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than Moses. The law came through Moses. Jesus is the new covenant. You don't just follow Jesus if you're a Christian. You're in Jesus. You know Jesus. You have Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus is in you. It is a fuller experience of God. See, where Moses was but what we call the instrumental means, he's the tool of God's covenant grace in bringing about the law, Jesus is the actual substance of God's grace to us. Moses couldn't give you himself and supply your need. Moses could hang around in your house all you want. You could ask him every question that you've ever wanted to ask Moses, and not a single one of his answers would do one thing to moving you closer to the throne room of God. 
He can't do it. He's Moses. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is the grace of God. He is what Moses was looking forward to. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Friends, we need to read the law, we need to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus because all Scripture points to Jesus. The law is a reflection of the truth and the grace of God. It points us to God. But Jesus is the truth and the grace of God. He's the object of the law. If you read the law and you don't see Jesus, you haven't read it right. If you're reading the prophets and all you see are minutiae dates and times, you're missing the prophets because they point to Jesus. If you're reading the book of Proverbs and all you come away with are practical helps for the day's work, you've missed the book of Proverbs. It's pointing to Jesus. So, we also need to beware Christian celebrity culture. So we need to read the law in the light of Christ, but we also need to beware Christian celebrity culture. You see, human ministers must never eclipse the ministry of Jesus. I can stand up here and say all sorts of wonderful things, and at the end of the day, it does not matter unless the good Lord says it. I can tell you things all day and tomorrow, but unless Jesus says it, does it really matter? It's not to say we need to that we should uh, not treat good ministers with respect or regard, but it invites us to always check the teachings of good and godly ministers with the plain text of Scripture, to be Berean Christians, as it were. The next phrase is, no one has ever seen God, the only God. He has made him known. Moses never truly saw God. And that's what the Apostle John is getting at, is that Moses, when he was asked, what do you want? What does Moses say? I want to see you. I want to see your face. And God doesn't say, okay, because you're my best friend, sure, right? He says, you can't handle it. (laughs) You can't handle the truth. (laughs) I'm going to stick you into the crevice of a rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to walk around this way in front of you. Like, it is a metaphorical way of saying, I'm going to protect you because you cannot handle seeing me. No one has ever seen God. That's something that every Jew would have known. No one. No one. Not Moses. Not Abraham. Not nobody. Nobody has seen God. So for John then to say, Jesus is God in the flesh. When Peter looked at Jesus, when he hugged him, he touched God. He saw God. He listened to God. When John the Apostle writes, we're not just proclaiming something we made up in our imagination. We're proclaiming what our ears heard, what our eyes saw, what our hands touched. I know that I touched God. Oh, friend, isn't that a most amazing thing you've ever heard? Jesus embodies the divine, and he is the perfect and final revelation of God. The word there is exegesis. 
It's what we claim to be doing here. We unfold the meaning of the scriptures so that we can understand it and obey it. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He unfolds God. He dissembles God. He makes it so that we can understand him and know him. And Jesus, Moses was refuted because God spoke with him as a man speaks with his friends, says Exodus 33. He saw the afterglow of the passing of God's glory in Exodus 33:19. But even Isaiah, who saw a vision of God's glory, cries out because he, a sinner, had seen the holy God. No, Jesus is the only one who can truly, perfectly unfold the meaning of God to us. Now, if we're going to understand the grace and the truth of God, then we must look for them and find them only and finally in the person, word, and work of Jesus. So let's apply this passage. Let's apply this passage. This passage calls us to learn to see and savor Jesus as the greatest gift of God. Learn calling on us to learn to see and savor and long for Jesus as the greatest gift of God. See, friend, this means that Christians don't reject or ignore the law or the prophets. We don't reject them, meaning we don't say, they were wrong, we're right. And we don't ignore them, saying, well, they were right, but we don't need to pay any attention to them. Now, instead, we understand the law and the prophets in their context as pointing toward and being fulfilled in Jesus. Christians live in the abundance of life and understanding that is effected and procured for us at the cross of Jesus. Just a few examples. One, we believe that Jesus satisfied the requirements of the law in our place. Sometimes you'll hear me summarize the gospel. I'll say things like, do you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived? That's my way of saying that we believe that Jesus satisfied the requirements of the law on our behalf. God gives the law. That's his holy character. He says, you must be like this if you want to endure and exist with me. Well, we can't do that. But Jesus did. He lived the life you should have lived. We also say that Jesus is the one who makes us ritually pure. He's the one that makes it possible for us to come into his presence. We treat him as our once-for-all sacrifice. So when I do this, I say, you know, Jesus is the life you should have lived, the life you should have lived. He died the death you deserve to die. The sacrificial system of Moses was a continual reminder every day that your sin was a stench before God and you deserve to die for it. And this animal is going to die in your place. Obviously, the animal can't actually carry your sins. The whole system was saying, well, somebody's got to take care of this. Christians believe that Jesus did that. He died the death you deserve to die. He took the place of the Lamb. When we call him the Lamb of God, that's what we mean. This does not, of course, mean that Christians live without morals. In other words, the Christians are the sort of people who say, well, Jesus lived the life I should have lived, and now I live the life I want. No, we, we believe that God intends by the Spirit and the Word of Jesus to change us, to transform us all the more closely into His holy image by obedience in and to Jesus. In fact, we believe He's going to do more in Jesus to us than He intended to do in the law. That a better transformation is worked through faith in Christ than could ever come about by simply obeying a list of rules. 
See, we strive toward but do not measure our value by perfection and obedience to the moral law. We strive toward, but we do not measure our value by our perfection in obedience to the moral law. By relying on Jesus' life to fulfill God's moral requirements, we esteem the law of Christ as excelling both the scope and the depth of Moses. And we strive to, as Galatians 5 says, keep in step with the Spirit, or as 1 John 5 says, to keep his commandments. So, Christians don't reject or ignore the law or the prophets. Instead, we understand them as pointing to Jesus. And that means, secondly, that faith in Jesus is not merely an intellectual activity or a new and different moral code. It involves both of those things. Faith in Jesus is an intellectual activity, but it's not just an intellectual activity. And faith in Jesus does bring about a new moral code, but it's not just a, moral, a new moral code. Christians are not people who are like, I figured out a set of rules that just feel great for me, and that's why I go with that crew. I identify with them. They're my tribe. We do what we want to do. No. Faith in Jesus involves the whole being. John wants to move you so far beyond saying Jesus was right. He wants you to say, Jesus is better. Do you feel that? He doesn't want you walking away from John 1 being like, I guess Jesus was right. He wants you to walk away going, Jesus is better. He is better than the law. He is better than the prophets. He is better than every other system that's ever been invented. He is better than every self-help book. He is better than me. He is better. He is the best. I want Jesus and I don't want anything else. I will have Jesus or I will have nothing else. I want Jesus. He wants you to say with the psalmist 4 verse 7, You have filled my heart with more joy than when their grain and new wine abound. You see, Christian obedience is worship. Worship is the natural expression of faith. We worship when we proclaim God in his glory. We worship when we listen joyfully to his word. We worship when we obey his commandments. We worship when we experience the gift of his community. We worship when we look forward to Jesus' return. Friend, this is not the part, we didn't do the worship part of the service and now shifted to the preaching part of the service. The whole service is worship. And when you're done and you're starting to talk to your brother or sister in Christ and you're loving on them in Jesus, you have not departed the worship portion of the service. And when you go to your job and you seek to obey Christ in everything that you do and you live for Christ and not for men, you haven't left the worship part of the service. Faith expresses itself. When faith is lived out, that is worship. Jesus does not save us to simply have a different law. Christians are not just law keepers who happen to disagree with Jews and Muslims. No, Christians are those who have been utterly transformed by the redeeming of God's grace in a new birth that satisfies his demands and enables us to live for his glory and to our ever-increasing pleasure. Jesus offers you freedom from slavery to sin. He offers you the fullness of God. He offers you cleansing from all guilt. He offers you a righteousness that perfectly satisfies God and eternally supplies what you need. Jesus gives you more grace. James 4, 6, but he gives us 
more grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In Jesus, we don't live up to the standard of God's righteousness. We live in the overflow of God's grace. We swim, as it were, in the ocean of joy and delight in God. We know God as he pulses through our veins. John invites you and me to taste and see that God is good, that he is near, and to know the greater grace that comes to us through Jesus, a grace that is greater than the law, a grace that gives us new life and new birth. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, utterly holy, wonderful God, we thank you for giving us in Jesus Christ the fullness of your truth and the reality of your grace. Oh God, for every heart here that pines to be satisfied of the nourishment of your table, cause them to feast on Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have known him and walked with him, satisfy us again to know that he is our law. He is our righteousness. He is our standing. And give us joy for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, please stand with us.